0: Welcome back to New Books and Sports Podcast, a channel on New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is Mitchell Nathanson, author of the new book, Bouton, The Life of a Baseball Original. Mitchell, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Great. Um, Mitchell is a professor of law in the Jeffrey S. Murad Center for the Study of Sports at the Villanova University. Of Law School of Law. He's also written God Almighty Hisself, The Life and Legacy of Dick Allen, A People's History of Baseball, and The Fall of the 1977 Phillies How a Baseball Team's Collapse Sank a City's Spirit. Uh, Mitch, tell us where you grew up and your involvement in sports and who you rooted for and uh, your professional career, if you would.
1: Well, I grew up in um, uh, Trenton, New Jersey and uh, I was uh, always a Phillies fan. Um, I, I lived right on the um, the edge of the demarcation between the uh, Mets fans and the Phillies fans. There weren't really any Yankee fans. Um, this is the early 70s, and the Yankees were terrible. So um, nobody in, who was a New York fan was a Yankee fan, at least that I knew. Um, so I always grew up a Phillies fan, and um, Uh, I, and I was a kid, I, I knew all the players and I knew everybody's batting average, but, um, you know, as you get older, you start to, um, you start to change how you relate to the game. And, um, so, you know, my relationship with baseball and with the Phillies particularly evolved over time where I became more interested in the personalities. And so, uh, that, that led me to start to write about them and, and some of the bigger personalities, uh, that, um, I found intriguing and, uh. That brings me to where we are right now, I think.
0: Great. Well, 50 years ago, uh, excerpts of Ball 4 were released in Look Magazine and created a storm of controversy, to put it mildly. And then the book came out shortly afterwards. Um, When did you first read Ball 4? I first read the
1: book during the 1981 baseball strike. Um, I, I, I was just looking for something to give me my baseball fix. And I, I was aware of the book, but um, I, I actually hadn't read it. Um, I think the only baseball books I had read up to that point was uh, I think uh, Tuck McGraw had a book called Screwball or something like that. And right. I was, there was a Pete Rose book, some sort of pseudo diary that he had – somebody had ghostwritten for him. I think those it may have been the only two baseball books I'd ever read. Um, so during the baseball strike, I picked up Ball Four and I read it and um, I loved it. Because it gave me what I was looking for, which was a connection to the game. But then I I also liked it a lot because it made me understand why the players were on strike. And so, I, I mean, I just wanted them to come back and play. Uh, and I knew a little about why they went on strike. But um, when I read Ball 4, I could see why they were on strike. And I could see the connections between what was going on in that book and uh, why the players weren't playing in 1981. So... Uh, right away it had a connection interesting it had a connection to me across time even though you know that's 11 years after the book came out Uh, and it was obviously wasn't written to relate to a a baseball strike that would occur 11 years later but I think it's an indication how that book uh, resonates across time because when you read it later in time you start to see different things than perhaps were initially uh, intended uh, when the book was written in 19, the book first came out in 1970. And, uh, what
0: were your impressions after reading the book of, of Jim Bouton? What'd you think of him?
1: I loved him. I mean, uh, I always like a wise ass, uh, uh a- anybody who, um, is a smart ass is a, uh, is a hero of mine. So I, I was, I was a big, uh, David Letterman fan. Um, I was a David Letterman fan, um, when he had his morning show. Right. So I was one of like the nine people who watched that morning show, um, and I just thought it was the funniest thing ever, and, um, uh, and I also think that Letterman used to write for Mary Tyler Moore or something like that. She had a variety show or something, and um, he would appear on that show, and so boughton had that same sort of sense of humor, kind of a wise-ass, um, uh, snarky approach to the world, and so it really resonated with me. And um, I loved him. I mean, I didn't think that anything that he did was wrong or bad or, or anything. I, I just thought he was a lot of fun to uh, to listen to and to read. And so, you know, people got mad um, about all different sorts of things when he wrote the book. But, you know, when I was reading it's 11 years later, all that had calmed down and it was just a funny book. And
0: that's what I got out of it. So what made you decide to uh, even tackle a biography of Boughton?
1: I, I thought he would be an interesting subject. Um, he had a fascinating life. He was a not just a baseball player but the but a writer, and then he was an entrepreneur, and he had a pretty interesting personal life, all of which I knew a little bit about. Uh, I knew drips and drabs of Boughton. I had followed him ever since – well, I followed him since he made his comeback in '78. Um, I thought, because I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, and so I was always uh, interested in him as a person. And as I said earlier, when I become more interested in um, baseball players as personalities, um, he's going to be one of those people that I'm going to really take an interest in because he's got a big personality. I mean, Mike Schmidt, as a Phillies fan, Mike Schmidt was the best player on the team, but you know, he's, he, he's he's white toast. You know, there's not really anything else, all, the, all that interesting about him once he steps off the field. Um, but for a guy like Boughton, all the interesting stuff starts the moment he steps off the field. So that's what makes him a better subject than a guy like Schmidt, even though Schmidt's an all-timer and, and Boughton really is a baseball player, is a guy just passing through. Right.
0: And I know that I think you wrote that they seemed a little reluctant at first uh, to do something like this. Boughton, I think, said something to the effect that, you know, he's written it all already. I mean, how did you convince them to um, proceed with the project?
1: Yeah, it was, it was, it took a, a little bit of convincing because Boughton, he, he was working on a book about his childhood, which was going to be obviously the first few chapters of the book that i ended up writing and so his response to me was i don't really need you um no he was always very nice uh but you know it made sense you know i don't need you i can do this myself uh but he had had a um a couple of strokes by this point this is 2016 and he had a degenerative brain condition which was hindering his ability to focus and work on that book and it was really his wife paula who interceded at some point and invited me up to the berkshires because as she's told me you know he's not writing this book but maybe if uh we talk a little bit uh we could get some of those stories out anyway um, and so when I went up and to meet with them, it was really, how could I do this book without totally, uh, over uh, upturning their lives? Uh, because obviously they have more important things to deal with than, than, you know, some idiot from Philadelphia who wants to write a biography. Uh, so we worked something out and they were really very accommodating and it turned out to be a really helpful relationship. I think that, uh, I don't think I overturned or upturned their life too much and uh, they were always accessible to me and it, I think it worked out really well. Uh, I, 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 I hope they feel the same way or I felt the same way but uh, I think they did um, because I think at the end, end result I think the product was uh, was worth the time.
0: You know I like the idea that the Bountains both said they didn't want a, a puff piece when you wrote the uh, biography.
1: Yeah that was one of the last things that they said as I was leaving that day that, that when I went up there uh just just don't make just don't make it a puff piece uh because that wouldn't really be true to who he was. I mean if you have a you know a, a hagiography of Jim Bouton, that's kind of antithetical to everything he was about and they were they're very self-aware uh and, and so they knew that and uh that's as a, as, a, as a writer, that's what you hope that somebody will say, but you don't expect them to say it because who wants to hear something that's not the you know, rose colored version of it? But they, they were exceedingly honest through the entire time. And that was, it, it continued to surprise and impress me as, as, as Jim, uh, his condition deteriorated. The tendency, when you once you get to know your subjects, you you either love them or hate them at some point, um, and and so I I really developed a fondness for for uh, for Jim, and um, as he was kind of deteriorating. I, I would have a tendency maybe to give explanations, at least when I was talking to them or Paula, really, about, well, you know, maybe this, maybe that. And she was, she would push back and say, no, no, you tell it like, you're, like you see it. Um, be honest, be real. And uh, so I was. And um, it was important to uh, them. It was particularly, partic- particularly important to Jim that people were aware of his condition and uh, what it was like. Which was very – it was not all that different from when he wrote Ball Four, and he wanted to give people an insider's look of what a a baseball locker room was like. This was his attempt to let people know what it was like inside the mind of a person who was going through something like this. And that's why he went to um, the Sabre conference in 2017 uh, and he was on a panel, which I was on with him. And he, he was very open and Paula was very open about his condition and, and the limitations that it had placed on him. And it was important to them that people know the unvarnished truth of what it was like. Um, because they felt like people have a tendency to, to try to sugarcoat these things to make it make others feel more comfortable. Uh, but what that really does is make people, more uncomfortable because they don't know how to react to a person who has a condition like that. Um, their feeling was if you're honest with people, people can accept the honesty and then deal with that in, in a more honest and real way. And I, I think they're right. And that was, that's why he went to Sabre and, and that's why they were always pretty open and honest with me. Yeah.
0: You know, I know your book is more than just about ball four and, you know, we'll get to the other stuff in a bit, but to me, that was more fascinating aspect of the book. What really fascinated me about the book was how you took the reader through the process of Boughton and Leonard Schechter, you know, creating and editing and marketing ball for, uh, was this, obviously this was kind of a goal for you to give sort of a, in his words, a locker room view of publishing, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, the, 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 the point of, um, uh, are you asking the, 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 how they wrote the book or, or why I talked about it? Um, both, both. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Can you repeat that question? I kind of got lost halfway through. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what fascinated me about the book was how you took the reader through the process of Bouten and Schechter creating and editing and marketing the book. Um, was this kind of a goal of yours to give that locker room look at, at how they did it?
1: Yeah, yeah. To To let people know Exactly what the process was like, sort of like he, Boughton, let people know what the locker room was like. I think people have, and they still have, uh, hopefully not after this book comes out, but um, I think they a lot of people have a misperception as to what that process was like. I think at the time, I read a lot of things from a lot of players and people in baseball saying that, well, Boughton just turned over um, all these rocks in baseball to make a quick buck. And he did this for the money. And when you go through the specifics of, first of all, the financials of of what their deal was, and then all the stuff they had to go through with their publisher, you can see very quickly, the last thing he did it for was the money. Um, There was not a lot of money uh, involved. Now, he ended up selling a lot of books and made money that way. But had he not sold a lot of books, he didn't get a big advance. And not only did he not get a big advance, but his publisher wasn't really all that excited about the book anyway. Um, so, you know, this is a publisher who a few years earlier was publishing Bibles. Uh, they, yeah, you know, it, it had been taken over and moved to New York. And so they weren't quite the same, didn't have the quite, quite the same mindset as they had when they were publishing Bibles. But that was their history. And they weren't looking for a book like this. And yes, they, they were happy to sell a lot of books, but they would have preferred to have sold different sorts of books, I think. Um, you know, I, I, th- so I wanted to give that insider's look as to just how this came about. You know, how, how does somebody put this together and what obstacles are involved in, in putting this book out and, and the fights that they had to fight about and Schecter to even get this book into the marketplace? Uh, and, and so when you hear people say oh, he just took the money and, and spilled a lot of locker room stories, that just completely is not true. And not only can I is it me saying it's not true, you can go through the documentation and you can read the letters and the correspondence and the contracts and you can demonstrate that it's not true. Uh, and, and I think that was an interesting and important part of understanding uh, not just the book but the motivation behind the book. And that's why I spent a lot of time on that. And I also think people think that sort of stuff is interesting and I find it interesting. So, um, and I hadn't read any of that stuff anywhere else. So um, I thought it was something new and uh, people would like it or at least be interested.
0: Right. And that book, uh, Ball Four, obviously was, it was the type of book that really hadn't been done. I mean you had Jim Brosnan writing those books in the early 1960s and then Jerry Kramer did the instant replay, but, this book really went a little bit farther. I mean, did Bouton realize what he was doing at the time, do you think? Uh,
1: He he gave conflicting answers to that. And then when I asked him later, he also sometimes would give conflicting answers. I I, I think the answer he always liked to give was that he just did it because he wanted to tell people about how much fun it was to be a big league ball player. And that's true. Uh, but he also, he also did it because he wanted to really talk about a lot of the, um, difficult things about being a ball player, the, the, the the prejudices involved, uh, when, when players who are coming from different parts of the country are all thrown together in a locker room. Uh, and, and in that sense, baseball in the sixties is a lot different than baseball today, uh, more cop players are college educated or and even if they're not they're represented by agents who bring their clients up to speed pretty quickly as to what it's like um that wasn't true in 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 era and so he wanted to do that he wanted to talk about management uh, and how management lies to players and he knew that that was going to get some blowback and so um yeah he wanted to show the fun but he also wanted to expose that and I spoke to people who were, excuse me, with him uh, during the 69 season as he was taking his notes. And and they told me that there were times where he would turn to them and say, boy, this book is going to really make a make a noise. And um, so he knew he he knew it was not another Jim Brosnan book. He knew this was something that was uh, a little bigger, a little more explosive.
0: Yeah. And the creative process is interesting, too. I mean, you talked about the Lion's Head Bar in Greenwich Village. And to me, it sounded like one of those uh, modern versions of the Algonquin Round Table. I mean, what kind of role did that bar have? I mean, you had writers all over the place. How did that help shape the creative process, if, if at all?
1: Yeah, that part was fascinating to me because uh, of the fact that you like, – like you said, it was sort of like an Algonquin Roundtable of, um, uh, of sports writing uh although not traditional sports writing so the 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 traditional sports writers uh they did what they did but then this place the, the lions head you got some you got a lot of sports writers from the new york post which was not that far away uh from from where the, the lions head was the village voice was right next door uh and and you got you got writers like norman Mailer and um uh uh who else? There's a whole bunch of other, Fred Exley, um, who wrote a fan's notes. He used to hang out there. Uh, so you, you had, you had writers who were interested in sports, but they weren't writing about sports the way Dick Young was writing about sports. And so they would talk about baseball. Mostly it was baseball. Um, but they brought a more literary sense to all of that. And uh, because of that, I think that that shaped a lot of what ball four was going to be. Uh, Schecter was was there all the time, and uh, Bouton would go there too when he was in town. Uh, and he particularly went there a lot during the off season, um, mainly because Schecter went. And they would they would talk to these people. They would talk to Jimmy Breslin. They would talk to Mailer, Exley, all these people who, um, you know, were had a broader view of baseball than what you would normally see in the sports pages. And that made a big difference. And, um, you know, I I mentioned the uh, Bobo Newsom Memorial Society, which was, which was kind of an outgrowth of, um, the, the the group of writers who hung around and, and the lion's head. And that was started by Larry Ritter who wrote the glory of their times a few years before, and Boughton loved that book, and the thing that Boughton loved about it was that Ritter turned his tape recorder on, let the players talk, and he trans- he transcribed them in their own language, and he thought that was just great. It wasn't cleaned up, it wasn't prettied up, it was how they sounded, and he that's what he wanted in Ball Four. And so, how did the Lions head affect Ball Four? Tremendously, if you consider that, it, you know, had Boughton and Schechter not run into Larry Ritter, um, you know, the book would have been different, and, and 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 had they not had all these conversations all the time with these people who were hanging out there, who were just really smart, literate, funny, insightful people, um, maybe they wouldn't have had the confidence to write what they wrote. Um, you know, um, it, 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 I, it, it's it the book sounds different than other sports books which is what makes it so different um but it didn't sound that much different from the other sorts of books that were out there that were not sports books and i think that's because they hung out with these people who were writing uh in other genres um although they still were interested in baseball so i i I devoted a uh, a portion of a chapter to the head because i just think it was so significant and and it 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 didn't um, it's not, of course, 100% responsible for why Ball Four looks like Ball Four, but it, it's, it played a really big role. Uh, and the people who went through there were just just impressive. And
0: didn't the, uh, the name from the book come from like a waitress or somebody who suggested it? Was that at that particular bar?
1: It came from a drunk lady <laughs> sitting at the bar. Uh, <laughs> and um, she was overhearing Boughton and Schechter uh, talk about potential titles. And um, they wrote down on a sheet of paper. Um, all these different titles. And I saw that sheet of paper. There's about 50 titles on there. Um, and she just blurted out cause she was drunk, you know, why don't you call it ball for, you know, because it, it was, it was something that was downbeat. It wasn't a positive, you know, you know, baseball hero sort of title. And interestingly, both Bauten and Schechter thought it was a terrible title. Um, <laughs> But then they came around to it later on and they realized, you know what, this actually is a pretty good title. And so after dismissing it, uh, basically, probably because of, you know, the source, (laughs) this woman falling off her stool, um, they came back to it and realized, you know what, that's probably a pretty good title. And that's what they went with.
0: And and the editing um that they did, I think you said there were fifteen cassette tapes and I believe nine hundred and seventy-eight scraps of paper, notes, napkins and whatever that Bowton used to record his thoughts. I mean, this must have been quite a process for Bowton and Schechter to figure out what the good stuff was and what was just, you know, idle chatter. How do you how do you sift through that stuff? Did he talk about that? Uh how did Bowton sift through it? Yeah, how did both of them sift through? I mean, how did they uh, decide, you know, this is good and this is not, you know.
1: So so yeah so he had those sheets and if you look at those sheets it's 978 sheets but it's almost every inch of available space on those sheets so like one sheet on both sides will have maybe 15 different observations or quotes or something um, from Boughton and he would use those sheets as you said when he was talking into his tape recorder that night and then and then he would send the tapes off uh when you look at the um, earliest draft, so he sent those tapes off um, to uh, a typist for the blind and he mentions it in ball four. Um, and the reason they use that typist is because they didn't get much of an advance going back to the money part. Uh, so they got such a small advance that, um, you know, Schecter was looking to save money and they, the, the, the I think it's a lighthouse for the blind. I think that's what it's called. And um They offered a transcription service at reduced rates, and that's why he went with them. And what came back was an onion skin um, transcription of exactly what was on those tapes. And when you go through that, it's very conversational. It's very, um, parts of it are stories that end up in ball four, but a lot of it is Boughton talking really talking to Schechter, saying, hey, this uh, I'm thinking about talking about this. What do you think about this? Is this a good idea or not a good idea? Or what do you think about this? How about that? And so that first transcription draft is, oh, God, I think it's about 700 pages, uh, type pages. Um, and they went through that, and um, you, you, you can see... As they go through draft and draft, um, and this is, you know, they're they're getting, you know, the transcriptions are coming, um, piecemeal because he's, he's about sending these tapes as the season goes. And as Bouton sends the tape in and Schechter then goes through the transcription and sends it back to Bouton or he gives it to Bouton when he sees him in New York, um, you can see that Schechter will underline certain things or put exclamation points on the side and say, or also, like, yes, more of this, more of this, what about this, how about this, no, um, this, you know, offering him sort of little guideposts. And that's sort of how the book got written. Um, it was Boughton write, or talking into this tape recorder, Schechter then encouraging him to go deeper in some areas. Uh, stay away from other areas because they didn't seem all that interesting, and that's how it all got put together. Um, and you can really see the process when you look at when you look at the drafts, and you can see the writing in the margins um, and all the underlining, all that stuff. You can you can really see how it got put together. And each draft is a little shorter than the one before because they're taking stuff out and they're focusing more on the
0: um, the interesting things
1: that ended up in the book.
0: So they had a pretty trusting relationship. You know, normally I'm, a, I'm an editor by profession and, and I know how difficult it is when writers turn things in to me and I change things or I suggest the other things, you know, I mean, there's this natural tendency to push back. Um, there must have been a lot of respect and, and trust between Boughton and Schechter, wouldn't you say?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, they were very friendly. They had been friends for almost a decade by that point. Uh, so it wasn't like two guys who got thrown together uh, by a publisher or an editor, you know, who, who didn't know each other. Um, these are two guys who, who sat next to each other on the plane, um, back when Schechter was covering the Yankees in the sixties. Uh, so they were very friendly and Schechter wrote a piece on, um, Boughton's, uh, adopted son, um, that, that ran a couple years earlier that, um, really let people into the private life of Jim Boughton and so by the time they're writing this book um, or they're working on this book together um, there is a lot of trust between them. Um, Schechter trusts Boughton and Boughton trusts Schechter's judgment and that's why it works because there's two people who one person's basically writing it and the other one is editing them along the way saying hey I like this, I don't like this, do more of this, do more of that. And then the, 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 you know, the, the first person is taking that advice and going with it rather than pushing back against it.
0: Yeah. And both they, and you document this very well, both of them had some pretty tough battles with their publisher. Like you say, who wasn't used to this type of book. I mean, they seemed signed at in the beginning and they were certainly worried about legal issues. I think you said they had 42 issues that they, they, their lawyers put together. And I think they, only dropped five of them. Um, Talk about that lesson that these guys learned. It must have been a very eye-opening experience for both of them.
1: The lesson they learned in terms of working with uh, World Publishing?
0: Yeah, with the publisher. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, they hated World (laughs) world Publishing Um, and and they they wanted out of that relationship before the book even came out. Um, They liked their first editor, but as happens, you know, people move on. And so that guy left. Um, there were two guys that they really liked at World. Uh, both of those guys were gone by the time it came to uh, edit the book in the, uh, in the winter of 70. Uh, and so they were put with this other guy who they didn't like. And the guy didn't really want to publish this book or he really wanted to bury it. And so they tried to get out of that contract and this guy wouldn't let him out. Um, as much as he didn't like the book, he wasn't going to let it get away either. Um, and so they, they wanted very badly out of this relationship. And, uh, another thing that happened is once the book came out, um, the, they, Boughton and Schechter had, a, uh, ended up suing world, uh, over, um, world selling of the paperback rights to Dell. Uh, and they eventually settled that. Um, because they felt that um, they weren't consulted on that. Um, and they thought that the, the sale should have been for more uh, than, than world got because the book was a huge success as a hardback. Um, it was a bigger success as a paperback, but it was a bestseller as a hardback. Uh, and so they, I, the lesson they learned was they were never working with world publishing again. And um, they, they, they held true to that. Uh, pretty soon there was no world publishing anyway. So, um, that didn't turn out to be a lifelong problem.
0: And then there was the reaction to the book. I mean, the players and the fans, but then some of the writers. I mean, Dick Young was upsetting, and he called Bouton a social leper, which um, led to the exchange that actually um, turned into the t- the co- the uh, title of his follow up book. I'm glad he didn't take it personally. And you know, basically, the baseball insider got scooped. You know, Dick Young revolutionized sports reporting, and by the '60s, he was a curmudgeon. Um, I was really surprised, though, that Roger Kahn didn't like the book. Why was he so upset? Roger Kahn, uh,
1: from I, I didn't. I tried to talk to Roger Kahn, but he he also had um, was in was in the throes of dementia for the last several years. You know, he died. He died just a couple of months ago. Um, he was not a he was not a nice guy. <laughs> from everybody, I never spoke to him, so I can't. I can't personally vouch for his personality, but I didn't talk to too many people who had nice things to say about Roger Khan. Um, Roger Khan was a guy who glorified athletes. Um, and you know, he, he was very much in that old school. Um, even though he wrote a book after ball Four um, that, um, you know, that, that was also a huge, huge success. boys of summer. Um, that book is like a throwback sort of a book. Um, it's sort of a, yeah, I don't say it's exactly the sort of book you would have seen in the 50s, but it's, it really gods up the Brooklyn Dodgers and makes heroes out of them. Um, I mean, I think there's one hero on the Brooklyn Dodgers, um, and, and then the rest of them are just a bunch of guys. Uh, nothing really special about the rest of them. Uh, but, you know, in Roger Kahn's eyes, they were all heroes and um, he didn't like that Bouton made the ball players that he was playing with into regular guys. Um, And so, you know, I I think, I think there was that aspect that Roger Kahn didn't like. I also think he didn't like the fact that it was a ball player who was writing it. So I think he was sort of like Dick Young um, in, in that he felt that The players play and then the writers write and it's the writer's job to contextualize and he didn't like that there was a ball player who was doing it um and was doing it really well by the way uh but um yeah i think that was his i I think those were his issues uh and um you know he he so he writes the boys of summer um which uh, you know is a is a classic baseball book um my personal feeling is I don't think that book ages very well, um, not like Ball Four. Um, you know, people could disagree, but I think when you read Ball Four a half century later, you, it still seems fresh. Um, when you read The Boys of Summer now, um, other than the Jackie Robinson stuff, it's I. It's hard to see what's so special about the Brooklyn Dodgers. I, I you know. Um, um, and it's an interesting con I think just context that has to be um taken into uh, taken into the into the equation so my my dad was a big Brooklyn Dodgers fan he grew up in Brooklyn um and he was a fan of theirs in the 40s and the early 50s so he was there he was right of the age and so I remember when um I don't know if I remember the day the boys of summer came out. I would have been way too young, but I remember that book was on our bookshelf. And so my dad would always tell me about what a great book this was. And it's such the Brooklyn Dodgers. had such tragic. You know, there was such tragedy that had um, befallen the Brooklyn Dodgers and they were, they were cursed. You know, they were this wonderful group and then they were cursed. And so many years later I read the book and it's true. That's, you know, Roy Campanella um, became paralyzed and Jackie Robinson got sick and, um you know um there there are some players who uh who fare well and a lot of players who don't, but as someone who didn't grow up with the Brooklyn Dodgers, it just sounded like a bunch of old ball players to me um you know um some of the stories are interesting, the Robinson stuff is interesting, the Campanella stuff is interesting um The rest of it is just, well, that's what happens when ballplayers get old. I mean, you know, they didn't make a lot of money and they end up tending bar and they go back into their old, a lot of them go back to their old prejudices. And I don't see why that's so surprising. Uh, So I think that book hit a tone with a certain group of fan. And I think if you're not that sort of fan, you're not going to get it. Um, But I think Ball 4 is different in that you didn't have to live through the 69 Seattle Pilots to have fun and get a lot out of reading that book 50 years later. Uh, and that's the difference. And, you know, I, I, it, it's just interesting that Khan and, and, and Boughton um, had this sort of a, I don't know if it's a rivalry, but um, I don't think Boughton saw Khan as a rival as much as Khan saw Ra- Boughton as a rival. But it, it's interesting to read about uh, Khan's reaction to the book, which I think was a little overblown, um, you know, it, it, yeah. but it and is my, interesting.
0: My dad, my dad also grew up in Brooklyn, was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Um, some of the critics of, of the book actually said, you know, and this probably rankled both guys, is that Schechter was the guy that did the writing and, you know, they just couldn't come to grips with the fact that, you know, Boughton could put a sentence together. I mean, why would they, I guess this goes back to your statement about the writer's right write and, the, and the player's play.
1: Yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do with, first of all, people in baseball wanted to say Bouton didn't write it because they, didn't, they wanted to protect Boughton. Um, Not that they wanted to protect Jim Bouton, but they wanted to protect the sanctity of the clubhouse. So if they could say that, well, this was really written by a, by a sports writer uh, who had previously already come out and said he wasn't a big fan of sports anyway, uh, Schechter, um, then you know people could take with a grain of salt all the things that are in there. But if Bouton wrote it, then that's different. Uh, so it's interesting that in the beginning, it's people inside baseball who are, who are claiming that Bouton didn't write the book. But then as the book becomes a cultural touchstone, it starts to morph into people who are uh, more literary, claiming, well, this guy couldn't possibly have written this book um, because it's such a great book. A ball player couldn't possibly write this book. And so that's it was interesting how that shifted. Uh, over time, um, so you know, I mean, I it, it's as to who wrote that book. I mean, it's very clear, it's Boughton. Uh But um, if people say, well, you know, Bowton couldn't type, which is not a also not quite true. But um, even if he couldn't, right? Um, you know, if you if that's the um, uh, if that's going to be the test for who wrote the book, well, then the typist wrote the book because <laughs> Schecter didn't type it either uh so you know it's so I was like what does it mean to write a book? i mean some people I sit down on a, at a at a laptop and I write other people talk and it gets transcribed. i think fewer people now than before, but that was a way that some people worked um you know um i don't think that is a uh, uh, you know does, is the person who who transcribes it the writer i I don't think so, right. but you know I think just people are looking for reasons to um
0: i, I guess that even me, i guess what? even mediocre players uh pitchers can throw a no header so it's the same analogy <laughs> well, what, what what kind of strain did this book put on bounton's family when it was released did you get a sense of that
1: um well his his you know in the beginning it was it was tough on his um on his wife and his parents particularly his mother who um was uh she was fine with the with with everything in the book. She just was worried that it was going to cost her son his career, and um, and people were saying such nasty things about him that she was she was upset for that. Um, and you know, it, it um, did it concern Bobby? Uh, I mean, maybe a little in the beginning, but you know, the book. There were some bad weeks in the beginning when the look excerpts came out. But then once the reviews started rolling in, um, the reviews were overwhelmingly positive. And then the book started to sell. And Bowden's at the end of his career anyway. Uh, so it really jump-started his next career phase. Um, so, you know, in terms of, 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 of how it affected them, um, I think mostly... Um, in positive ways. I mean, Bobby, um, uh, crocheted a pillow where, it, which said, uh, thank God for ball four, or something like that. Or God bless ball four, something like that. Um, because it was, you know, they made, first of all, they made more money from ball Four than Bouton made playing baseball. Um, but it also led to things that came after, which probably wouldn't have come after for him if it wasn't for the book. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it was a, um didn't certainly didn't wreck his life um it it, it was you know it's traumatic you know with any time you get um ripped apart by members of the media i mean that could certainly be traumatic. but um but then there was this other pushback that was so positive that i think over outweighed all of that
0: and um uh, speaking of family did you find that uh, bounton's family was uh fairly cooperative in talking to you about the book
1: Yeah, yeah. So I spoke to Bobby, I spoke to Paul, I spoke to, um, you know, his brothers. Um, And they were all very, um, all very helpful. Yeah, Um, very open. Uh, And so that was great. I think a lot of that came from the fact that, um, that, that Jim was okay with it. I mean, if Jim was not okay with it, I don't think I would have spoken to any of them. I don't think they would have spoken to me. So that was really important. I, I, when I wrote my Dick Allen book, I didn't have Allen's permission. Uh, and uh, I was still able to speak to other people. Um, but um, it's because Allen was such a recluse or is such a, you know, such a, I don't know if he's a recluse, but he's, 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 not, he's not easy to contact. So I, don't, I think people spoke to me just simply because they weren't going to hear from Dick Allen anyway. Um, but Bouton was different, and um, I spoke to a lot of people who were part of his life, and the, the the first thing they would say to me is, well, let me check with him before I talk to you, um, which I was fine. Go, go check with them, and then they would speak to him or Paula, and then um, they would call me back or um, let me know it was okay. So it was huge that I had his um, okay, um, and then once I did, everybody was very, very helpful, very cooperative.
0: Yeah, I was, I was very happy to see that um, you know Bobby Bowden, Bowden gave you uh, you know photographs to use and which was you know just priceless stuff. Yeah, let's um, let's talk about his childhood that you went into quite a bit of detail about. What, what did you find out about his youth that, that surprised you?
1: I guess I o- had I had always assumed that if you were a major league baseball player, you were probably always the best player on your team. Uh, or the best athlete and he clearly wasn't uh he wasn't a terrible athlete but he wasn't the best um and you know he was never never a standout (laughs) which you know the guy ends up in the major leagues and not only does end the major leagues he you know he wins 20 games for the yankees such as in the world series you know takes don drysdale you know toe to toe in 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 the 63 world series um that's, that's – I, I would never expect that. That would be a guy who couldn't make his high school team. And, um, you know, I've, I have heard things in the past about players who didn't play baseball until later. But they were good athletes in other things. Um, you know, Boughton was okay at other things. He enjoyed football and basketball and all those other things. Um, so he was, he was good. You know, he was an athletic kid. But he wasn't a superstar. I don't think anybody yeah. would have thought that of all the kids in in, high, in his high school, this is the one who was going to um, pitch for the Yankees. I don't think right. anybody would have said that. Um, and so him. to me, I found that to be pretty surprising.
0: Um, I guess he, he still – I mean to play like that, you still got to be very competitive, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he's a pretty competitive guy.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was always very competitive. Um, and so that's that helped him overcome – Maybe some of his physical limitations that he just wanted it more than anybody else, and you can that, that helped him when he was in New Jersey for sure. When the comp level of competition wasn't as great as it was when he moved to um, uh, Homewood, Indiana, and he was in the Chicago Heights uh, school district, which is huge. Uh, and you know, when he got out there, you know, he he was up against some really world-class athletes and he didn't, he didn't succeed as well as he had in New Jersey, where really when hit in his neighborhood, you, you just, if you were a decent athlete and you wanted it more, you would succeed. Um, but when he got out there to you know, Chicago Heights, it was a different ball game, but it's still, you know, because he was, you know, the bulldog as he would be known um, that got him a lot further than I think he otherwise would have gotten. Uh, and that, that's, that's for sure.
0: Did it seem apparent that he was going to be some kind of a guy who just sort of marched to his own tune?
1: Yeah, he was always like that. Um, he, 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 he was just a guy who had a, a sense of himself and what he thought was right. And that's what he was going to do. And he, he, was, he was, as I write in the book, he was always very entrepreneurial and he would just go ahead and do things. I mean, a lot of people have ideas. Um, Boughton was actually a guy who would have an idea and then he would try to make it work um, and he would spend a lot of time trying to make it work and not everything worked I mean a lot of things didn't but but he he would get fixated on something and then he would just try to figure it out and I think 90% of the people in his shoes would have given up with regard to most of the things that he worked on but he wouldn't and again that doesn't mean he always succeeded. He didn't, but he was able to succeed a lot more than he otherwise would have, simply because he just had this drive uh, to see things through.
0: He was, um, you know, he was definitely a guy who could, you know, relate to the sports writers, as you said. He knew Schechter for about a decade. You know, he knew the chipmunks. Um, I guess that sort of set him apart from the other athletes of, of his time. I mean, everybody was sort of just mouthing cliches, but he was. I always remember a thing I think he wrote in. I'm glad you didn't take it personally. I think Mel Stoudemire hit an inside the park home run and he someone asked him about it. What did you think? And he says, I was hoping he would fall down because he put too much pressure on the rest of us. I mean, he, <laughs> he was fairly good with his uh, relationship with the press, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was always the person who you would go to to, um, to get a quote. And I spoke to a lot of writers who covered the Yankees in the 60s and they all said that the Yankees traditionally were a team that was tough to cover because they were, you had to cover them because they were, they you know, they were, they were the New York team. Um, they were winning world championships, but they, they didn't have a lot of personality and they, and they didn't have a lot of people who spoke uh, a lot. Uh, you know, mantle was great, but he, he wouldn't really tell you all that much, but Bowton would tell you anything. And, um, so they would go to him even when he wasn't pitching, and they would ask for his take on, you know, how did this guy do today? What, did he, what was he throwing out there? Why was he doing this? Because they knew that Bouton's explanation would be better than the guy who actually pitched that day. And they might get a couple of quotes from the guy who pitched that day, but they would get a lot more from Bouton, uh, even though Bouton was sitting in the dugout watching him pitch and wasn't on the mound. Uh, and if you go through and look at those old clippings, Bouton is dominating those articles on games when he's not even playing, um, because he has the most insight and he's the most willing to offer it up. Uh, and so you could go hang out by Mantle's locker and Mantle will give you the back of his neck. Um, if he's not in the right mood or you go to Boughton's locker and Bouton will sit down and talk to you for half an hour. And that's, so that's what they did. And that's, that's why I think so many of the sports writers were drawn to him because, uh, he made their lives easier, um, which again is a contrast to Dick Allen. You know, Dick Allen made sports writers' lives more difficult, and you know they paid them, they they punished him for it. Um, and um, you know, it, it just goes to show you that a lot of times it's it, it, how it's how well you you um, relate to the to the sports writers that can really affect. People's perception of you um you know a lot of these sports writers turned on bouton after ball four came out but before that they uh and including dick young dick young was a huge jim bouton supporter he loved bouton um because bouton would talk to him um he was every time bouton had a holdout dick young hadn't had positive things to say about him he was basically you know gushing over bouton um that changed of course when ball four came out but you know um Jim Bouton's a great guy when he helps Dick Young, but he's the worst thing in the world and a social leper when he trods on Dick Young's territory. Um, I saw that with the Dick Allen story, and I saw it again with the Bowden story, uh, and which just makes you know. I know we're talking about Bowden, but it makes when you the, the Hall of Fame voting you know pretty ridiculous um, when it comes to a guy like Allen, because you know. He made people's lives difficult and so they punished him. Um, has nothing to do with what kind of a ball player he was. And
0: yeah. so And yet Steve Carlton never talked to anybody, but he still managed to get into the Hall of Fame. So it's well right,
1: because there are certain there are certain guys who can get away with that. Right. So Steve Carlton is a guy who is a such a no doubt about it guy that right. um, he's gonna get in no matter what. Allen was not that on that level, right? Allen was a great player, but he's not a no-doubt-about-it guy like a Carlton mm-hmm. was. So if you're not on that no-doubt-about-it level, um, then you better be a good guy or else they're going to punish you for it. I mean, if Allen had 600 home runs, right, he could have he, he done what he wanted and um, nobody would have said a thing. But right. he didn't have 600 home runs, and so therefore they, he was more at their mercy, and that's why uh, he's had so much trouble.
0: And the ironic thing about Bouton, you know, with his rapport with the sports writers and whatever, he became a sportscaster. He clashed with his colleagues. You know, he was a guy that could write, but it looks like he didn't. He didn't suffer um, jocks who just read the scores. He wanted to do fun pieces or think pieces. I mean, is that a fair assessment? He just didn't want to just read scores, did he?
1: But he was an ideological purist, and he 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 would listen to differing opinions. Uh, but he, he had a vision of the world. I think I said this earlier. He had a vision of the world and, and, and what was right. And if, if your, um, vision clashed with his, um, he would tell you. And, um, so yeah, when he got into the sports casting business, he came across a lot of guys who were go along to, uh, get along to go along kind of people you know um people who would just do whatever it is they were told to do um guys like frank gifford for example um who i i, I don't think bouton had any personal animosity towards frank gifford but he didn't respect him either um because he just thought gifford was out there you know at one point he said he was a you know refrigerator salesman um that's all that gifford was um he was a good-looking guy He would get up there and 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 read the scores and whatever they put in front of him Gifford would read it and half the time he wasn't even listening to what he was reading and that would bother a guy like boughton who was very opinionated had was very engaged in the world and to see people standing up there and just being robotic pissed him off and so uh he didn't he didn't have respect for those guys and if you're in local television news um you know you're 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 kind of just trying to get along and, and and make it to the next ratings period and then here's a guy like Bowden, who doesn't really need it like these other guys do and I think that's important because those other guys were career newscasters broadcasters Bowden's just passing through uh, and so you know if, if Bowden loses his sports casting job he's fine with it um, because that's not that doesn't define him but Other these other guys, and that's what they are. And so, you know, for them, seeing a guy come through and just being pretty um, irreverent about the whole thing, um, first of all, bothers them because they don't feel like they can be irreverent. Um, And and I think looking the other way, Bout looks at them as just sellouts. And so it's not a it's not a um, a recipe for for a great relationship.
0: And you know, I didn't realize how much he. Antagonized and tortured Sal Marciano.
1: I <laughs> <laughs> hated Sal Marciano and Sal Marciano didn't like him. Um, yeah. uh, I, mean, I don't know if Bouton hated Sal Marciano. I think, I think, um, I think he, he didn't respect Sal Marciano. Um, I think, yeah, Sal Marciano told me one time that, uh, Bouton just looked at him one day and said, uh, something to the effect of, you know what your problem is? You're ordinary. And, um, well, you know what he meant by that is there's nothing about you that is you know, you don't bring anything to the table. You know, you're just a you're you're a vessel for delivering delivering highlights. And mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, to a guy who's a career, you know, sportscaster, that's uh that's a that's a cutting remark. <laughs> you know, that cuts yeah. it to your core. Um, because Sal Marciano really can't Sal Marciano can't do what Jim Bouton does, right? Um, if Sal Marciano tried it, he'd be gone in an hour because who cares about Sal Marciano? Um, Jim Bouton is the guy who wrote Ball Four, and he's this irreverent guy. And he's known for that. So Bouton can get away with it, and Sal Marciano can't. Um, not that Sal Marciano wanted to, but I, I think Marciano and other people like him who were in the newsroom with Bouton, um, I think they resented Bouton's freedom. Uh, and, and, um, they also thought that he was a publicity hog, uh, and, um, you know, but who's, you know, who are people going to be drawn to the, you know, the guy who wrote golf or the guy in the yellow blazer (laughs) in the sports scores. you know, one guy has a cachet and one guy doesn't, um, there's nothing you can do about that.
0: Talk about uh talk about come comeback with the Braves. I mean, why were some of his opponents so upset? I mean, was it because of the book or because some like 39 eight, thirty-nine-year-old guy was striking him out with a knuckleball?
1: I just think that there was a there was a um, there's an ethos surrounding baseball, which is of course still there now, that you know, this is how it's done. Um, this is the pro- this is the this is the progression, this is how it works. And just like Bowton upended um sports books in Ball Four and he upended sports broadcasting in um you know when he was a sportscaster, he then goes out when he hasn't played in eight years uh and just decides, hey, I'm gonna do this. And I think that I think a lot of ball players took offense to that. They felt, geez, how, you just how do you just walk out of a news studio and play Major League Baseball? You just don't do it. And I think they were offended. I think they took it as a personal insult that a guy would be so cavalier as to say, ah, this isn't so tough. I can do it. And, um, I think that was a lot about it. Um, sure. There may still be some resentment of, about ball four, although by 78, there aren't too many players left who were even around in 1970. Um, there are some, but I, I, I just think it's a lot of people knew the name, Jim Bouton, um, Um, had internalized, although they probably didn't know why, that this is not a good guy. He's not on your side. Um, And then he just cavalierly decides he's coming back to pitch in the big leagues, and that's another insult to them. And so um, when he does it, and particularly when he does it using a knuckleball, which doesn't get respect in Major League Baseball anyway, uh, I think that all of that combined just – just pissed people like Bill Madlock off. They just didn't like the fact that this guy was like an interloper coming in here and, and I, I think well, they At thought least it wasn't
0: he, Steve Hamilton's blooper ball blooper bowl
1: <laughs> it wasn't that. But I think they thought he was making fun of them. And um you know even though he even though he struck out Madlock and, and he pitched well, you know, he he didn't he, he had one bad game, but he generally pitched okay. Um which just adds insult to injury, right? That the guy not only does he come back, but he, he does all right. You know, he's not the worst guy out there. Uh, And, uh, I think that they had trouble just, just dealing with that.
0: You know, I always thought the, uh, the big league choose story was interesting, but I didn't realize how hands-on Bouton was. I mean, it looked like he really stuck in there with his negotiating skills that he learned when he was dealing with the Yankees back in the mid sixties. Um, how business savvy was he?
1: He was really business savvy. So I spoke to, um, his, um, his, uh,
0: his, trade, his,
1: his uh, IP lawyer um, who talked about dealing with him uh, on a business level. Uh, and, and so what he told me was that, you know, Bouton's a rare guy. I mean, he's a creative guy, but he also has a business sense. And generally, you would get one or the other. You get a guy who's very creative but has no business sense. Uh, or you get somebody who's a good businessman but they're not very creative. But Bouton could do both. Um, And uh, um, this guy, uh, this attorney said, well, he's kind of like in his he's like his own version of a Steve Jobs. You know, he can create something, but then he can see how it would um, uh, be marketed and and make it into the hands of people who could use it functionally. And he said, that's a rare thing. And so while the attorney would draw up the contracts, Bouton would generally do the negotiating with Wrigley uh and um and he was he was involved in the marketing of Big League Chew he was involved in what the packages looked like he was involved in um who would be the um uh the spokes people or characters for Big League Chew um he was very adamant and he was right that he didn't want celebrities hawking Big League Chew he wanted the cartoon characters um which you see on the package um, and his point was, well, you know, if a, um, you know, if you keep, if, if you just keep with the cartoon characters, you're never going to find them in bed with somebody, um, you know, on, on the front page of the National Enquirer one day, and then your brand is, is down the toilet. Um, he's right about that. Uh, particularly when you're, um, you're pack, you're, marketing bubble gum for kids, uh, who first of all are going to be attracted to a cartoon character, and second of all, you don't want that, um, the potential for, some sort of scandalous thing to just take your brand down. Um, and so he was very adamant about that. And um, the people at Wrigley were stunned that he was, would show up to the meetings because generally, I mean, they had dealt with tons of athletes. But um, generally, you know, the athlete goes away and the lawyers take over and negotiate it. But they were stunned that Broughton would sh- not only would he show up, but he was the one doing the negotiating. Um and um, it threw him for a loop. But um, you know, they they he was the guy who was going to do the negotiating. Um, he didn't negotiate everything, but he he negotiated the stuff that he thought was important that he could contribute to. Uh, and uh, and you know, in the end, Big League Chew was a huge seller.
0: You know, I think uh, reconciliation reconciliation is a big uh, played a big part toward the end of Bouton's life, um, you know, with the Mickey Mantle stuff, um, getting back together, at least coming to an understanding. And then the Yankees, thanks to Bouton's son writing the op-ed for the New York Times, getting back to old timers day. How much did it mean to to Bouton to type those loose ends?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, the stuff with the Yankees, um, he had other things. Obviously, that were on his mind then, um, and uh, I think I think the the stories that showed up in the in the newspapers after Bouton came back for Old Timers Day in ninety eight um, made it, uh, in my opinion, I think they a lot of them just got it wrong, in, in that they said, oh, you know, all is forgiven, and and fountain didn't need. Uh, wasn't looking, you know, to, you know, to forgive anybody. Um, and he certainly wasn't needed. He didn't need to be forgiven because he didn't think he did anything wrong. Um, and you know, it was a nice gesture, um, by the Yankees. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I, I he wasn't looking to get back into the Yankee fold. Um, and um, he didn't anyway. <laughs> you know, they invited him back a few times, but, you know, he's just not a, he's just not their kind of Yankee. You know, he's just not, he's not a Bobby Richardson, right? Um, you know, so right. you know, forget the superstars for a second, but the other guys, like a Bobby Richardson, you know, that's, that's a, that, that's more of the Yankee mold. Um, you know, not as yeah, exactly
0: about I guess what really affected him though, was, you know, the death of his daughter. Which in Ball Four he referred to her as the unsinkable Molly Brown. I mean, this really had the I mean, Any time you lose a child, it's devastating. But that's that really knocked him for a loop, I think.
1: Right, and which is why the Yankee part of that is, you know, it's it's a it's a little it's a heartwarming part, but it's not the motivation for anything from his perspective. I mean, he's dealing with something much bigger than that, and. Yes, it was nice to go back and, um, and he was warmly received, um, and fans were happy he was back. Um, but, um, you know, he wasn't looking for forgiveness, as I said, and, um, it was really more of, you know, he was dealing with a lot with, with, um, you know, when, when Laurie was killed and, you know, out of that, he, he cashes out of big, big chew also, um, uh, and so his, his life changed a lot dramatically in those few years, um, as, as he, yeah, it, it, as, as that chapter unfolded. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a tough time, obviously. I mean, it's tough right. to recover from something like that.
0: That's for sure. So going back and reflecting on what you, in this project that you did, what did you find that was the most interesting piece of information that you discovered while doing your research? Is there one thing?
1: I don't know if there's any one thing. Um, um, uh, You know, I, I just thought, I don't know if there's any one thing that I, that I came across that was, that was so, um, mind-boggling um i did find you know all the stuff that he was tinkering with he he came up with this thing called the baseball brain you familiar with that yeah Mm -hmm. um so this was something he put out in the early 70s which was you know he became interested in what we now know as sabermetrics way before most people were interested in sabermetrics um advanced analytics and and that's because he hung out with or he met this guy who was a professor, a mathematics professor, who was telling him, you know, that the the statistics that these teams are using, they're not right. They're not, you know, <laughs> people are measuring the quality of seasons and, and of bats by metrics that just, they don't tell the story. And and so he, you know, again, he has this idea in his head that to, to get this information to, first he wants um, ball clubs to use it, and they just ignore him left and right. He wanted the Yankees to hire this guy, and they didn't hire him. Or I think eventually they may have hired him, but they just ignored him. Um, but um, but then he gets it in his head that he's going to put this thing out, and he puts together this little this little sliding chart called the Baseball Brain, which it's very rudimentary. I mean, it's nothing like you're going to see on fan graphs, but um, it's just interesting in that it's it's not exactly how you would look at baseball as a fan in 1974. You know, you would look at batting average and RBIs um, and home runs. That's it. Um, but, and maybe if the person's sitting against a righty or a lefty, but this little, um, card that he has, it breaks it down even more specifically to specific pitchers or specific batters. And it really shows you that, well, a player might hit a certain way against a certain kind of lefty, but not another kind of a lefty. And to me, that just shows, this is a guy who's just not going to accept conventional wisdom. And we see that over and over and over again. And the baseball brain is to me, it's it's just so emblematic of who he was. It didn't sell very well. Um, people just didn't care. Uh, although you know, a few years after that, a couple of decades after that, everybody would care. Um, but um, at the time, he was just so far. He was so far ahead of everybody else. So far ahead of the curve. Sometimes you can be so far ahead of the curve that um your impact is muted because nobody else can see what you're doing uh and i I think that that to the extent that anything hindered him in his life it was that that he was so far ahead on so many different aspects that things didn't get off the ground for him not because his ideas weren't good but because it the rest of the world needed needed time to catch up to him um and so I, I, I think that, um, you know, Ball Four w- succeeded like it did because it just hit the moment, the cultural moment at the perfect time. Came out in 1970, right? when the counterculture is booming. And, you know, Portnoy's complained is on the New York Times bestseller list. So a book like Ball Four just, just nails the cultural moment, um, just gets it exactly right. But this other stuff, The Baseball Brain, and then he had a couple of ideas for other things a reality television in the 80s you know that he had that idea and and couldn't sell it because people thought nobody cared well you know a few years later everybody's doing reality television you know um so if you don't hit the cultural moment a lot of these things which may be great ideas go unnoticed or unappreciated and um i guess so if you go winding all the way back to your question i do think that the baseball brain to me is just so indicative of that and so when i uncovered that or actually uncovered he gave it to me um and explained it i just thought wow you know this just sums up in one little card it really sums up so much about him yeah
0: well here's here's the part of the interview where i ask you uh, what i missed is there anything you would like to add about the book that we haven't addressed today
1: no i think we went through a lot
0: um, and yeah, we did yeah well, I, I mean, I found it very interesting and, you know, I'd go another hour if we could, but, you know, I know your time is valuable as well. And, you know, we appreciate you being with us. Uh, what's your next project?
1: Uh, I don't know. Uh, I have to think about that. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm running out of a uh, baseball iconoclast, you know, <laughs> you got <laughs> Allen and Boughton and, uh, I don't know who's next. I got to find uh, somebody. I don't not know. The,
0: not the Gary Bell story.
1: Yeah, I don't think the Gary Bell story is going to cut it. uh, (laughs) As much as I like Gary Bell, but um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I have to think about it. I'm not quite sure. Um, One of these days, I'll settle down on something. But um, on the other,
0: another item, uh, talk about the uh, pandemic book club that you've uh, involved with with several other writers.
1: Yeah, so so this came about as a result of obviously um, the events that uh, stopped. Uh, everybody in their tracks in um, the middle of March it was a bunch of us who had um, baseball themed books coming out in the spring wondering well what the hell are we going to do and so um, it really was uh, um, uh, Brad Beluxian and um, Jason Turbo uh, I I think they were the ones who had the initial idea Um, and you know, the idea was to pull our resources, and um, since we're all fighting the same battle, we, it would be better if we fought it together as opposed to separately. And so we joined up, and um, now there's a there's a large handful of people in there. I think it might be up to twenty people um, uh, who are all writing baseball themed books, but they're very different. Uh, so mine's a biography, and um john shea has a uh has a biography um and then there's uh the wax pack which is of course a a baseball kind of a travel log um and then there's there's um there's a couple of uh children's books and some illustrated books and um you know uh, a novel the cactus league uh the writer of that uh, emily neemans and so um you know it's all people who have baseball in common but in different ways And when we all get together, we have a lot of, each of us has some information and some connections, but when we team up, then we all have the benefit of everybody's. And it really has been great. Um, First of all, it's just moral support Uh, when everything went to hell, at least you have other people who could commiserate with you and at least understand kind of where you're coming from, even though, yes, this is not the biggest problem in the world, but you know, these are all, it's also something that we spent each of us spent a long time working on these things and we wanted to see, um, you know, some matter, some manner of success. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's frustrating when, when things happen again, not the biggest problem in the world. Nobody should cry a tear for any of us, but um, but you know, it it was, it it was really helpful to have other like-minded people to share ideas with and frustrations with, and then also figure out how are we going to move forward? how are we going to um, get word out there about what we're working on and what our books are about and, um, and get these books or at least the idea of the books in front of the people who might be interested in reading them. And so that's what the pandemic um, uh, book, baseball book club is about. And uh, it's been great. I have to say it's really been great. And now we're thinking about ways to keep it um, active, um, even Hopefully, when this thing ends soon, um, you know, to make it into something which we can um, use as a uh, kind of a platform to help us, you know, get the word out with regard to other things we might work on going forward. So, um, it's really been great. You know, writers have it up have a tendency to uh, be jealous and be resentful of other writers, uh, and so this is an opportunity for us to actually um, get beyond that. And, and and work towards a a common goal, and it really has been good, uh, and it's been it's really it's been a heartening experience. I will say that, um, and uh, hopefully, it lasts for a long time.
0: Great. Well, we've been speaking with uh, Mitchell Nathanson, the author of Bounton: The Life of a Baseball Original. Uh, we really want to thank you for being on the show today. I mean, really, really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I uh, I really appreciated uh, the opportunity to
0: talk to you. It was a lot of fun. Great. Well, you've been listening to New Books and Sports, a channel on New Books Network, and I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember, the game is what matters.